Welcome to Case by Case. This is a podcast brought to you by Luke Sadkiewicz and Callum Chain from ZFZ. How are you today, Callum? I'm good, Luke. I am. Um, we're obviously pre-recording this slightly, but uh, but I am feeling the festive spirit as we are ready to clock off for the for the uh, for a Christmas podcasting break. Yeah, well, this is a significant episode for a whole bunch of reasons. One, it's the last one of the year, as you say, and we're about to sign off the podcast for the year i dare say we'll still have a few other things to do work wise um before the year ends but podcast wise this is our last episode um but more importantly than that we have some super super exciting news to share not only um will i continue to call callum chain uh uh, a partner in podcasting, but from the 1st of January, we'll be calling him a partner in the law firm. Congratulations, Callum. Thank you, Luke. Super excited. Really looking forward to it. Uh, it's, yeah, it's been it's been a great few years here at ZFZ, so it's, uh, it's, it is really exciting that, to be taking the next steps on the journey and joining the partnership with you guys. Yeah, exactly. Look, we're so excited, mate. Um, you've done splendidly well it's richly deserved uh you're just such a great guy and a good lawyer and um most importantly above all just a a great team player um and really uh, a fabric and and part of the ethos of the firm so i'm delighted i'm really looking forward to working with you as a partner in many ways things won't change at all but in in some ways uh, of course they will and um it's no small feat to make partner at any firm and um uh, hugely congratulations it's a, a momentous occasion in your career and one that i know you've worked very hard for and you've given a lot to your clients a lot to your colleagues and to the firm so well done um and for anyone else out there wondering basically uh, the criteria to make partner at zf said is that you have to do 50 episodes of a podcast and then you get it <laughs> then you're in then you're home and this is it this is the 50th episode the 50th episode special we've ma- I managed to coordinate the two things to come together in one bumper podcasting episode <laughs> yeah we did that well hey 50th episode and, and and hey we were true to our word you you looked up after our last podcast the 49th podcast um some statement where i i said months and months ago we should try and hit 50 by the end of the year and lo and behold 10th of february i had to do some digging to find that but i remember it, it stuck in my mind as 50 being the target for the year and there we go it's all it's all come together we deliver we deliver well look with with that really happy intro um let's get into it we're actually going today to do our third and final um, look back, uh, if, I'm, if I can call it that, case, um, where as a part of preparing for an upcoming um, university course that I'm delivering on international shipping and commodities law, we've been looking at some old cases, not some recent cases as we usually do, um, but looking back at some old important cases. And we've had a trilogy of um, of sale and purchase contract disputes in the commodity space. And this is another one where we're going to get into the depths of conditions um, in a sale and purchase contract. And importantly, I think it's a, it's a really useful follow-on from the last episode. So if you haven't listened to the prior episode, I'd encourage you to do so because I think the two um, podcasts can, uh, are going to nestle up nicely against each other, Callum. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think these the these last few that we've done all really do c- come together as a triumvirate of, of cases. So where does that leave us in the Star Wars? Is this the Return of the Jedi? Is that the third one? Yeah, yeah. A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, this is a, this is Return of the Jedi. This is the Return of the Jedi. Okay, we're on to number three. Uh, we're not worrying about the whole new new series of Star Wars. We've just gone back to the to the good ones. No, <laughs> I actually love them. I, I, I love them all. So, okay, what are we talking about? The case um, that we're going to... Actually, you know what? I'm going to just hand over this because this is some kind of French word that, you know, you, you are the master of pronouncing French. So I'm going to hand, hand it over to you to butcher rather than me. Yeah, I'm going to butcher this. It's something along the lines of compagnie commerciale sucre et denrée. Wow. Now, now that sounds a lot better than what I would have said, which I won't, I won't hurt our listeners' ears by trying to say what I was going to say. And what, Charnacow? 
Charnakow, um, uh, who are the appellants. Often you see the, the word Tsar, the Russian word Tsar spelled C-Z-A-R. So I wonder if it's kind of Tsarnakow. We need, we need some help on that, I think. And look, this was a House of Lords decision. So it went all the way up to the, um, to the highest court in England at the time. So this was in the 1990s. That's now the English Supreme Court. Um, before uh, five of the lords, Lord Bridge of Harwich, Har- Harwich, is it? Or Harwich. Um, Lord Brandon of Oakbrook, Lord Ackner, Lord Oliver of Aylmerton, uh, and Lord Jauncey of Tullychettle. Mm, some fantastic names there, aren't they? A veritable smorgasbord of difficult to pronounce names to get us going in this 50th episode special. Yeah, I think some of those names were harder than the, uh, the respondent's name. So, right, um, where do we start? Do, do you want to open this one up with um, a summary of the facts, Callum? I think it's probably a good place to start. No, not that we need to spend a huge amount of time on the facts, I don't think, but it's probably a good place to start. I've got lots of thoughts on procedure again on this one um, and also the substantive issues that were discussed, but maybe we start at the top, eh? Yeah, let's start there. So this, this is a contract for the sale of sugar. Um, the, the contract was entered into in December 1985. Um, you had the, the appellants who were the buyers and the respondents were the sellers. Um, there's the appellants and the respondents before the, before the House of Lords. Um, and it was for the, for the purchase of 12,000 metric tons of white crystal sugar on FOB terms. And critically, the contract incorporated the rules relating to contracts of, refine, of the Refined Sugar Association of London, which is which referred to in the, uh, in the judgment as just simply the rules. Um, and one of those rules, Rule 14, arguably imposed an obligation on the sellers to be able to begin loading immediately after the, buy, the buyer's vessel arrived. So this, as I say, this was an FOB contract, meaning that the, the, the buyer was going to provide the onward carriage from the point of delivery, which would be to, onto, the, onto the buyer's vessel. And the question for the court was, was twofold. It was on, you know, on a proper construction of, of the rules, the rules being the contracts of the Refined Sugar Association of London. Um, the, did, did, did the rules incorporate a term whereby the sellers had to have the sugar available when the buyer's vessel arrived within the, within the stipulated period? Um, and the, secondary, the second layer to this question was, if, if that obligation did exist, then was that obligation a condition of the contract? And those two questions had been answered in almost every possible formulation in the lower courts and in arbitration. It was incredible in a way how how much flip-flopping there was through the various layers on um, on these questions. And, and I mean that with respect. It, it was fiercely argued throughout. A lot of legal energy, I think, as it was put somewhere in this decision or words to that effect. To that effect. Um, but ultimately, the House of Lords... Um, went the way of the original arbitrators, which I, I found really, really interesting. Um, and before we get into the, the actual decision, the, the, arbit- the arbitrators uh, were from the Refined Sugar Association. So it was referred to the Council of, of the RSA for arbitration. Um, and they answered yes, in effect, to, to both of those questions that Callum had posed. Um, it then went uh, up to... Um, uh, first instance judge on appeal and then into the court of appeal and then we end up here in the House of Lords. Um, and as it went through those two first layers of appeal through the courts, there were different formulations of that. Some said no to the first question, yes to the second and vice versa. Um, and I, I think what, what's quite interesting about that, just as a bit of an aside, Callum, um, is we touched on in the last podcast um, the threshold for an appeal. Um, and I don't know whether you did this, but you know, it won't surprise me if you did as well. Um, but following that, that episode, I went and had a look at the threshold that was in place 
at the time. Um, and I, I believe it's the Arbitration Act 1979. And what we're talking about here is the threshold to appeal on a point of law from an arbitration decision into the court system. And at that time, the, the main, and I, I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but the main test was that it's one of general public importance um, or for some other special reason should be considered by the Court of Appeal. Um, so it, it, the, the test wasn't as high um, as it was in the later uh, incarnation of the Arbitration Act in 1996, um, which has the, the obviously wrong test um, or that it's open to serious doubt with public importance test combined. So you've got the two routes through under a Section 69 appeal on a point of law as matters stand at present. But at this point in time, when this case was decided back in the 90s, the threshold was lower as we had anticipated. Um, and I couldn't help but think... I just wonder whether a decision like this that goes all the way through the court system is just yet one more case on the tipping scale to increasing that threshold in the Arbitration Act. I, I haven't studied it. I haven't gone back and looked at it. I'm sure there's all sorts of commentary on that point. But seeing the cases just in isolation, that this case went around the, you know, around the churches, around the houses, and then ends up back at what... Now, I thought, looking at this case in today's day and age, seems pretty straightforward. And, you know, the arbitrators would have been given a lot, would now be given a lot of deference in, in the view that they came to. Yeah. And I, and I wonder if, I mean, in a way, it looks straightforward now because of cases like this one. But at the same time, if, if, you ha if it did really go around the houses, I mean, so the, the arbitrators said, yes, this obligation did exist. There was an obligation to be ready to load. And yes, it was a condition of the contract. Um, it then goes to the commercial court and the judge there says no. It then goes to the court of appeal and the it seems as though two of the what the one of one of the judge says yes to both questions. Another another Lord Justice says that they they broadly agree but not entirely, um, also answering yes to both questions. And the third Lord Justice says no. It then goes to the House of Lords, where there's again a dissenting opinion, but overall they come down on the side of the arbitrator. And I imagine the arbitrator probably would have, well, the arbitrators, I don't know how big the, the tribunal was in this, in this case, but they presumably would have watched this go through the courts and arrived at the end with some feeling of professional satisfaction, having seen their initial arguments or their initial position upheld. But it, it, it almost, it almost, when it got to the to the top level, when it got to the House of Lords, and this this slightly goes into the meat of it a little bit, because I think one of the key takeaways from this from this case is is when you're looking at whether a, whether a whether a, a condition of the contract, whether a term in a contract is a condition or a nominate term, it's it's critical to look at the commercial effect of that of that clause, and in the context here, the the House of Lords. At least, at least the person giving the leading judgment in the House of Lords kind of came round to say, well, actually, the arbitrator is almost best placed to answer that question. It, they, they they quoted extensively from the from the from the arbitrator's initial initial award and said, you know, it's not really for the House of Lords to say what's commercially extremely important when an arbitrator who is dealing with these sorts of disputes day in day out has taken the view that this is extremely commercially important. So there's almost this bizarre thing where the further away from the, arbit from the arbitrator's award that it goes, the more power the arbitrator's award has as a point of, as a kind of commer commercial touchstone for the, for the court. I think it's a really, really good point, Callum. And I had the same, um, same takeaway when I was reading it in that um, it, it, it almost, it starts with the arbitrators. The arbitrators present a, a view on this obligation and say, yes, it is important. Time is of the essence. And, and let's get into a few of those reasons in, in a minute. Um, sets it out very clearly why, uh, from a commercial perspective, that time should be of the essence in a sale and purchase contract around time-based clauses. Um, and then it goes into the court system and it, it, it almost read like, um, the, the, the leading decision here in the House of Lords was, well, the judge had it, his or her own view on why this should not be a condition. 
Um, and it was almost like being plucked out and said, well, there wasn't a whole lot of substance commercially behind that view. It was looking at it and construing the words like there's a whole debate here about what the sugar means. Like, you know, and only lawyers can have a debate like and then have pages or paragraphs set out on what does the sugar mean in a contract. Um, I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek there. But there were a few kind of parts of the relevant clause that were plucked out in the court um, at the court level in both uh, levels before it got to the the um, House of Lords, where they were focusing on, in on these particular parts of the clause and then coming up with a construction of that. And the the approach in because remember what are we trying to do here? We're trying to assess whether a term is a condition or not. And if it is a condition, it's a condition. Um, if it's not a condition, then you start looking kind of further down the line to see, is this an innominate term or is it a warranty? And that's one of the areas on the dissenting side in this judgment that I thought I wasn't convinced by in, in view of the last case we discussed on, on Bungi. Um, uh, but but the, the point here is that um, you, you first need to make a decision on how important is this term to the parties? How fundamental is it? Does it go to the root of the contract? Should time be of the essence? Was that what the parties intended at the time they entered into the deal? And the arbitrators are very well placed to make that type of decision. And that's pretty much what the House of Lords is saying here. It's saying, well, arbitrators should be given a lot of deference. And, and I, I totally agree and I, I endorse what you said that I think the arbitrators here would have um, uh, received a lot of kind of professional pride. And, um, and I think arbitrators should be congratulated and thanked more often than they probably are in, in many of these um, arbitrations. And I don't just say about this one back in the 90s. I mean, in, today, in today's um, modern times as well, because they've, they've often had experience as uh, commercial people. Um, they've either been looking at these cases time and time again. They know how it has effect in other cases and what parties expect. I'm not saying that they don't ever get it wrong. But when you're looking at the commercial importance of a term, which is bound up in this analysis of whether a term is a condition or not, um, they should be given some some deference, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I, and and that seemed to be the way that it, that it, that it transpired here. And I think... It is often the case still today that the the arbitrators in any decision are given a broad degree of deference on the more the, the more commercial decision. The more commercial decision is, the more that you you tend to see um, whether it's the high court or the court of appeal. In in today's cases, deferring back to the to the decision of the of the arbitrators on those points. Um, and I suppose the, the I guess the real high watermark for the for the deference to the arbitrators is is the fact that arbitrators are are simply the arbitrators of uh, or are wholly the arbitrators of fact. And even if you even if you get through that higher um, that higher hurdle for a appeal in in today's test, you still can't appeal on facts. You can only appeal on questions of law. So the court almost kind of uses that, I suspect, or the law uses that as a as a as a way of saying that okay, the arbitrators can understand and where where you where parties have agreed to go to arbitration, the arbitrators are completely empowered to work out what the facts are in that case. However, if there's a dispute on a point of law, then the court may have the jurisdiction above it to, to answer a specific legal question. Whereas here, a lot of it, you know, it's almost one of those questions that trans, transits fact and law to an extent. You know, what's the, what, there's almost the, the, the fact that construction of a contract can often have the kind of factual element to it. You know, what, what were the parties, what, what would, what would a party really have been, have been wanting here? What's the, what's the commercial um, intention of these kind of words? There's, it's, it's quite, you know, it's a legal question, but it's, it's on the kind of facty end of the legal spectrum. Yeah, I know. It's interesting the way you put it like that. And, and I agree. I, I totally agree. And I think that's what, Lord Acton was doing here in um, setting out verbatim what the arbitrator originally said and the reasons that the arbitrator went that the way that uh, arbitrators went the way that they did. I think it was deliberate. I think it was kind of putting a, an exclamation mark on the point that you just made, Callum. 
And some of those reasons for why the House of Lords or what, why the arbitrators originally found that this was a condition which was then endorsed all the way up at the House of Lords level included, one, that the time of delivery is of greatest importance in commercial contracts and contracts in the sugar trade are no different to any other type of commodity um, contract. So just, just pausing there, Luke, do you, that, that to me is, you know, it's part of the rationale for a, le- for a legal answer to the question of construction, but that's almost a, a factual finding. You know, the, the time of delivery is of the greatest importance in contracts in the sugar trade. It is. It is. It, 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 it's kind of bound up together, isn't it? It's, it's one of these kind of mixed law and fact questions. You can't make that statement with some understanding of the facts of what, it, what it's like to do business in, in the sugar trade and, and other trades. Uh, and that comes through. It, it's, it, it came through in the Bongi case that we discussed in the last episode. Um, mercantile contracts, commodity contracts, um, in those, time of delivery is super, super important. And there are many reasons for that. Uh, the, often the, the buyer will be arranging um, subsequent sales. Those subsequent sales, will, the delivery period will be the same as what's in the original delivery period. Sometimes they're just, they're just selling on um, and often selling on the margin um, and, and on the paper. And they're not really interested in what's happening in the underlying um, logistics of, of the commodity trade, they're just selling on the margin and playing um, speculative trading on, on the actual market. And so in that situation, if you're a trader that's never actually going to take delivery yourself, you're just going to sell it on and your your subsequent buyer is going to be concerned about the actual goods and getting them and delivering them to the other end, then what you're most interested in is what are the terms that you're agreeing to and are they back to back? Um, and, and that's that's critical, right? And and so, okay, that was point number one. Totally agree. There's elements of fact bound up in that statement. Um, and the rules in um, in the particular um, uh, RSA rule, Rule 14 here, concerning delivery, the arbitrator said were also of the utmost importance. And in particular, the phrases, the seller shall have the sugar ready to be delivered, and the buyer shall be entitled to call for delivery. Both of those kind of elements of of rule 14 were said to be emphatic using the word shall. Um, And then, you know, the the, the third reason was about um, that giving reasonable notice to to enable the seller to perform its very important obligations was important because then it would trigger the commencement of loading and the period for loading. Um, and that was also a, a very important clause. And then I think the, the other interesting factor here, and it kind of flows into or segues into a discussion of the dissenting decision, is that um, the arbitrators said that they do not accept that the payment of demurrage would be adequate compensation for the buyer in the circumstances. So for those for many of you listening in, you'll know what demurrage is, but it's a form of liquidated damages um, that's agreed in advance, a figure in the contract to compensate for delays in a, in a contract. Um, and uh, the arbitrators were saying that some type of demurrage rate in the sale and purchase contract would not be sufficient compensation in the event of missing a loading period. Um, because as we've described, there's all these potentially um, follow-on effects of, of, of missing a, a delivery period. And then, Callum, the, the um, uh, Lord Justice, sorry, Lord um, Ackner goes on to emphasise that or endorses those, those very points that the arbitrators originally made. Yeah, exactly. Here, here are the points that the arbitrators made and, and I endorse them. And what the, one other point that I thought was really quite interesting in there kind of bundled into this point about demurrage is that the there's this the way that the contract is structured is there's this big delivery window um, where the parties agree that the sale could happen at any point within this window, but it's the buyer who gets to nominate when the ship arrives within that window. So the so the the window might be let's just say from the first of January to the end of February, 
and the buyer then nominates a, a two-day period within that window when the ship's going to arrive and they want to load and, and affect the sale of the cargo. The 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 arbitrators found that 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 the length of time that the buyer was able to negotiate was a valuable option to the buyer because the buyer can then is then in a better position maybe to agree an onward sale or they they perhaps have more flexibility in there in, in when they can put a ship into into collect the cargo or maybe they've got more flexibility about at what point they actually take the cargo if the if the price is fixed you know at the time of the sale being agreed then they, they, they may have some um, kind of arbitrage in, in taking the taking the cargo on a specific date versus a different specific date for whatever for whatever reason it is if there's a long period within which the buyer can say I would like the cargo please then that there's value to it and the the arbitrators kind of found that that was almost priced into the into the price and it would be odd if they came to a decision that took that right away from the buyer by saying actually you telling the seller that you're going to arrive on this specific date and the seller not giving you the cargo is it, it you know it's it's okay for the seller to do that or the only the only remedy that you get from the seller is demurrage they said the buyer's actually got something more important than simply a, a a right to demarriage they've got they, they've got an option about when they pick up this cargo i thought that was that was an interesting point exactly uh, it's really well explained if you don't mind me saying callum um and, and there's a point in amongst that that i thought just to emphasize that might not be um uh, that apparent or, or that obvious but it's this this arbitrage point that you make about how trading commodities work you might have a spread of 30 days for, um, for loading in, say, this particular contract you're dealing with where you're the buyer on, on, of the goods. Um, and that covers 30 days, in this case it was sugar, um, where you have the option to call for that cargo within that 30-day period. Um, but then... On the market, the market rises, you're now a seller selling that same cargo to your buyer um, and somewhere in that, um, that period, you want to actually narrow the loading period to let's say the last week of the, the 30 days that you had in your original contract. And if you agree on just the, the you know the seven day period at the end of the thirty days, because the market has gone up with your buyer, you might be able to fix that at a higher price. And so, what you're then making, as I said before, you might not be interested at all in the actual logistics of the trade. You you just go back to back on the underlying terms. Um, you have a different. Um, period of loading, but it obviously overlapping, so it's within the other one, um, and you're making a margin, and that's that's the business model, right? In many ways, and if you can't be sure that you're going to um, have that cargo within the thirty days, you're going to be exposed to to damages to your to your buyer, and you're going to miss out on the margin. So that's why a a demurrage type compensation which is compensating for time albeit pre-agreed in advance and it might factor in other things in just time doesn't really lend itself well to covering that type of damages claim yeah exactly and maybe with all of with all of that background all of all of that kind of commercial uh, rationale is helpful to look at the specific terms at issue here. I, I did wonder when I was reading this whether the judgment itself is is actually better as a as broader principle than it is on this specific question because in some ways it, it's it's reasonably it's a reasonably narrow question which gives rise to quite a broad kind of general statement of law. But I think it's it's worth going through the, the contract any, anyway. Um, so there, there's there are these two there are two different parts of the contract effectively. And anyone who's in in the international trade world will be kind of familiar with the idea of having a, a front end contract and then a set of rules that are incorporated. And it seems like that was the case here. So you had clauses seven, eight, and nine of that front end contract. Um, clause seven was delivery, and it said to one or more vessels presenting ready to load during May June nineteen eighty six buyer to give seller not less than 14 days notice of vessel's expected readiness such notice to be 
be given on a business day in seller's country prior to 1600 hours London time to be effective that day. And eight was the price. Uh, it simply set out the price and said that it was FOB. Um, and then nine was loading and said the seller shall load the sugar at a rate of 750 metric tons per weather working day of 24 consecutive hours, basis five days, sorry, basis five or more hatches to merge and dispatch as per charter party rate for seller's account. Um, and if you pause there and that's the only part of the contract that you have, then it was common ground that under those terms, there was no obligation on the seller to have the sugar available to begin loading immediately when the vessel arrived at the port. There was a liability in demurrage if the vessel, if the if the sellers failed to load within um, the number of lay days that, that you would derive from the calculation of 750 metric tons per day across the entire cargo. Um, but there was not a, a, a specific obligation um, to be able to start load immediately. So, th- so the question was then, do the rules, do the, do, do, do the, do, do the rules change? Um, and in particular, Rule 14, does it add to the contract in a way that imposes that obligation? Um, and Rule 14 is reasonably long. There are a couple, that, a couple of sub-rules that I thought were quite important. Um, the first was Rule 14, Sub-Rule 1, that said, in cases of, and includes FOB, contracts, this, um, co- sorry, in cases of FOB contracts, the seller shall have the sugar ready to be delivered to the buyer at any time within the contract period. Um, and the other, the other sub-rule that, that was pretty important to me was Sub-Rule 14.4, which said, if the vessel or vessels has presented herself in readiness to load within the contract period, but loading has not been completed by the last working day of the period, the seller shall be bound to deliver and the buyer bound to accept delivery of the balance of the cargo or parcel up to the contract quantity. So the effect of Rule 14.4 is is effectively that if the sugar wasn't there, but it could, you know, some loading could be, um, sorry, if, if, if the sugar was not there and loading hadn't been completed by the end of the working day of the period, then the seller remained bound to deliver and the buyer remained bound to accept the delivery of the balance of the cargo, um, which almost put a kind of open-ended, um, gave, gave the contract a kind of open-ended structure unless there was a condition of the sort that the buyer was arguing for. Unless the buyer could say, actually, I, I choose to walk away because you failed to deliver the cargo. Then under Rule 14.4, it seemed to me that the contract could, in theory, go on almost indefinitely with demurrage accruing and accruing and accruing. Yeah, I, I see that. I see that. Um, I, I, I think that's right. And and then, you know, if you go if you go back to um, the first of those provisions that you that you went through um, on what was called Rule 14.1, although I, I think the actual not, sub-numbers weren't there in the original clause. But for the ease of use, it's been called 14.1. Um, the first issue was this question of the sugar, <laughs> which, I, which I talked about earlier. Um, and the Court of Appeal um, uh, approached that uh, and indeed an argument um, before the House of Lords that that was a, a crucial question um, and whether that meant the um, the entire contract goods, whether or not the buyers has, had exercised their option of taking delivery in one or more lots as provided by Rule 11. Um, and this, you know, then went into the, the point about... Um, uh, Rule fourteen one two three, which all referred to um, the sugar, um, but the the House of Lords and particularly Lord Acton were of the view that um, uh, Mr. Morbick's submission on that um, kind of overlooked what the sugar meant, and that um, it was clear that the sugar must refer to the entire contractual quantity of sugar, or to any lesser quantity for which the buyers may have called for if they had exercised their option of taking delivery in one or more lots as provided by Rule 11. So there was this ability within Rule 11 to to call for a lesser amount. And if that was the amount that the buyers required and that they called for, then that would be 
the sugar. It didn't mean that it had to be all of the um, contracted goods delivered within that period of time, which we, we can see how that might not have even been possible. Um, so anyway, that, that was one point that was taken up. Then the, the next point or kind of breakdown of um, Rule 14.1 was the meaning of ready to be delivered. Um, did you want to take that one, Callum? Yeah. So, so the argument here is almost how if, if this is a condition, if it's a condition that the sugar must be ready to be delivered um, whenever the buyers ask for it, then that puts a really difficult burden on the seller because yeah, well, how are we going to have all the sugar stacked up beside the ship waiting for it to come in? It's, it's unworkable, it's uncommercial. And the, the court kind of found that what was meant by ready to be delivered was not that it was all stacked up and set and set out on the quayside waiting for, to be loaded onto a onto a ship. What it meant was that the the goods should be and they they quoted from the case of European grain shipping against David Geddes, which is a nineteen seventy seven case that looked um, that that looked also at the question of the goods being available for delivery. And they endorsed what the judge said in that case, which was that the goods should be in such a state of availability for delivery from and including the first day of the delivery period that they can be delivered to the buyer as soon in a commercial sense as the buyer requires the seller to deliver. So the, it, the although this is a condition of the contract, the requirement is not that the the, the requirement is not that the that the that the seller has the goods kind of you know immediately accessible it's that the seller has the goods you know there or thereabouts but but ready to be given to the buyer in very short order but with kind of normal commercial tolerance applied and, and then that then flowed on to the third um uh, aspect of this clause that they looked at and that's the meaning of at any time within the contract period and the argument here um, by um, uh, more big as he then was, um, was that it didn't really make sense for the sellers to have arrangement, arrangements in place during the whole contractual period so that these goods were always sitting there ready to go for the whole period of time. Um, uh, and that at any time within the contract period, um, uh, does not mean not at all times. So he was kind of drawing this distinction between any and all, I think. Um, and um, the the decision here was that coming, it's almost coming back to the point that you made earlier about the purpose of having a buyer's call, right? Um, where this was, the clause was set up in a way that gave the, the buyers a call uh, or an option uh, is another way of putting it. Not perhaps as high as a demand, and there was some debate about whether a call is the same as a demand in, in, the, in the courts below. Um, that really wasn't, wasn't the point. The, the point was that the clause was set up in a way so that the buyers had the option here. They had the call. They had the ability. Um, and... Um, the uh, the leading decision here kind of restated Rule 14.1, I think, quite helpfully um, to say that what the term really means is that the seller shall have the sugar called forward available for loading without delay or interruption as soon as the vessel is ready to load the cargo in question. And when you think about it in that way, I think it does make sense that um, as you say on interpreting the, the, the prior uh, point, that the cargo needs to be available, ready to be um, uh, delivered on the buyer's call. Uh, it doesn't all need to be packaged up sitting there you know, on the quayside for, for the whole time, but it needs to be uh, available. Um, and that's, that's really how... There was a lot of debate about this, uh, and this is where it talks about that... The House of Lords said that it's understandable that much time and intellectual energy was expended in the Court of Appeal in considering, you know, the the other decisions and, and these points um, around what does buyer's call mean and this and that. Um, but really, there was an additional express obligation 
um, on the sellers to have that cargo ready at buyer's call. That was that was, that obligation was brought in through Rule 14, um, and they were in breach of it. Uh, and that that was really the the end point to the first question. Um, agreeing with what the arbitrator said at the first uh, at the first go at all this, and then the second question was, um, which we've discussed a bit already, whether that was um, a condition, whether that additional obligation was a condition or not. Yeah, exactly. And this is this this is where. It's helpful to listen to the episode 49 that we recorded that, that, that went out last week because the, the decision that we have here, the, high, the, the House of Lords in this decision, we're really looking back and applying the principles set out in, in, the, in, the, in the Bungie and Tradax case that we, that we discussed last week. It's, it really follows very closely the, the fault lines of that decision. Um, and, and this is really where the House of Lords, I guess, solidified that, that that law is an appropriate way of looking at what's a condition and what's an nominate term in the mercantile sense. Um, and again, there was a lot of influence drawn from the from the court here on the uh, from from the arbitration award itself. I'm just trying to find the the, the phrase. Yes, yeah, it's, it's page uh, one thousand three hundred forty-seven uh, of the law reports, where and at the very bottom of that page. The uh, Lord Ackner says, it will be recalled that in paragraph 14 of the award set out above, the arbitrators considered Rule 14 as being one of the utmost importance. And again, there's, this, there's, there's that reliance we spoke about earlier in the, in the podcast of the House of Lords in looking, looking down to the arbitrators at kind of the bottom of this, of this legal, legal chain of inquiry to guide them on what's the, uh, what's the commercial you know what's the commercial importance of this provision um and again we see the not we see the same the same conversations that we saw in uh Bungie and tradax where they say that you know this you know firstly the court shouldn't be reluctant to to hold that an obligation has the force of a condition um i think secondly you have a parallel between this case and the Bungie case where the only way that you can breach the relevant clause is by being uh, delayed by causing delay in a mercantile contract there's no there's there, there's no other type of breach that you could that you could have here it's all it's all about delay and where, where time is of the essence in a mercantile contract or where, where you have time clauses in mercantile, mercantile contracts there's there's a sense that it's um you know it, it may it may be of the essence um it, there, there was a kind of interesting point which is taken from the lords lowry's comments in the Bungie case where he says the treatment of time limits as conditions in mercantile contracts does not appear to me to be justifiable by any presumption of fact or rule of law but rather to be a practical expediment founded on and dictated by the experience of businessmen so there's not it's not it's not the case that where there's a where there's a time limit in a commercial contract it's automatically a condition all the time because of some you know strict legal reason it's it's just that in the cases that, that the courts had been through, in particular the Bungie case that we discussed last week, in this case, the court was finding that it was practically expedient in the experience of you know, in the commercial experience of the of the people who actually were entering into these trades for a time period to have the force of a condition rather than a nominate term. Yeah, exactly, Callum. Um, you're right. And uh, the court here, Lord Acton, went back and looked at the, the much earlier case of um, Benson and Taylor in 1893, and I think that's a helpful case to go back to look at as well. Um, admittedly, it was looking at it through the prism of um, condition or warranty without much discussion about nominate terms. Um, so I, I wouldn't take it in isolation, but on the point of um, how to look at whether a term is a condition or not, I think it's quite instructive. And the the quote that's set out here, I think I'm going off memory, but I'm pretty sure it was quoted in the Boogie case as well, is that there is no way of deciding that question except by looking at the contract in the light of the surrounding circumstances and then making up one's mind whether the intention of the parties is gathered from the instrument itself will best be carried out by treating the promise as a warranty sounding only in damages or is the condition precedent by the failure to perform which the other party is relieved of his liability? Um, and I just think it's, 
it's important to to not think about um, these types of provisions as black and white. Yeah, if it's a time-based provision, it's definitely a condition in a sale contract. Um, no, that's not the way to look at it. Yeah, it, yes, you're going to be thinking in those terms when you have a time-based provision, but actually what you need to do is go back and look at look at what the intention of the parties were in the surrounding circumstances. And what would have been the effect of it? And we've talked a lot in this podcast and the last one about the commercial reality and um, as you say, Callum, the the court here emphasised in multiple occasions that what the um, the tribunal said uh, deserves some respect and um, and deference, and and to put a exclamation mark on that, um, even when deciding the point on whether this um, provision was a condition or not, Lord Ackman said this. To my mind, the evaluation by this experienced trade tribunal of the commercial significance of Rule 14.1 was wholly justified. So it's not like it's not like it's just coming at it um, afresh and saying this is the principle that should be applied. It's like the tribunal looked at this. It's an experienced tribunal. They found this way, and I think that decision was justified. It's it's a language. I'm talking about language usage here, but it's language usage usage that makes a point, and and I think it's really instructive and brings us right back to where we started this podcast on um, the thresholds for appealing arbitrators' decisions and um, on points of law on errors of law. And yes, you can. We've had recent cases where we've appealed on arbitrators' decisions through the current. Um, threshold there is on the Arbitration Act. Um, but it's set up in a way now where I think the example of this type of case, Callum, comes through in how courts consider whether to give leave or not on original decisions, particularly in the commercial space like these ones. One of the key takeaways from, the, from a case like this, um, you know, how, do, how, does, how, how does looking at a case like this shape our practice today? And obviously, we have the ratio of the case and we have the, the, the impact of the case, but also those procedural points are so important to have in mind and the background to the laws that we have now on procedure are all informed by this, this, type of, this type of decision. Should we mention, just in passing before we wrap up, I know we've probably gone on for a bit too long, but it is our 50th episode, so we weren't going we to make this a short one. Um, did, you, did you want to say anything about Lord Brandon of Oakbrook's um, decision, just in passing? I thought I thought you might be you might be going there. Um, in some ways, quite a sensible dissent because effectively, what he said is there are there are a number of different clauses in this agreement that deal with delay, or there are a number of different there are a number of different clauses in this agreement that stipulate a time for performance and. None of the other ones are given the effect of a condition. In fact, in other cases, they're expressly not conditions. They're expressly made good with damages, for example, um, demerge. And he said, it's odd. Or I think he said, let me see if I can find exactly what he said. Illogical, that said. It seems to me to be illogical to interpret the contract with its incorporated rules in such a way as to classify two obligations, the breach of which would cause delay in the loading of the ship as warranties, and another, the breach of which would have the same effect as a condition. In each case, what matters to the party to whom the obligation is owed is the result of its breach, namely delay in the loading of the ship. Um, and I think this, I think in, in some ways that's quite a persuasive point. I think the issue is that it's a different it's a different character of delay between the two you know between the the sugar the sugar being there but there being some other issue that delays the ship and the sugar simply not being available um, and and the, the 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 sale being delayed for that reason uh, I think that's 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 where that's where you get past this but it, but in some ways i thought it was quite a forceful dissent yeah i, I see that I, I also wondered though how it sits with um the concept of anonymous terms because he's he's kind of gone from thinking about or considering this in terms of is this a condition or not and then almost jumped into the gravity of the breach analysis without expressly doing so so it, it's not like he's 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 found expressly here I don't think it's a condition. I think it's an anonymous term. And then when you look at the um, uh, the consequences of the breach, I don't think it's sufficient enough um, to be able to rescind the contract. 
it, it is almost still like in, in the old way of looking at it pre, pre, pre um, Hong Kong fur and pre Bungi. And I, I just thought it, it just seemed to, I, I take your point and I think you're right. And I, you know, I say it with the greatest respect, but it just seemed to me that it wasn't actually looking through it through the prism of this kind of hierarchy of three types of terms that we know so well now. Anyway, interesting. I, I thought it was a, it was a great case. Um, I've, I've enjoyed looking back, Callum. In New Year, wh- why don't we get into some uh, some recent cases? We'll take our, our, our audience back um, uh, to, to looking at updated cases and things from this age. But I, I think it's really useful. I'd encourage everyone, um, if you haven't already, to go back and listen to the last three cases. I know that it's in part been because I'm preparing for this course coming up that we've done them, or in very large part. Uh, but... It is really interesting to go through this exercise. I've enjoyed it, Callum. Um, yeah, I'd like to do a similar thing, you know, every now and again, um, take three cases, four cases, whatever it is. And, if, you know, all of the cases we've done here have been about the effect of certain terms in sale agreements, um, you know, whether they're conditions or nominate terms. And you can, we can similarly do something on damages, whether it's you know, damages under under a charge party agreement, or whether it's damages under a sale contract, or you know there 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 are a number of there are a number of these types of cases that come in in small groups that together paint quite a good picture of one area of law. And I think it might be something to incorporate from time to time on the on the podcast, um, maybe during the during the the uh, the courts holidays. We can we can throw in some of these some of these periods of um, looking at specific issues through a lens of historic cases. Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. There's an idea for uh, for next year. So look, Callum, congratulations again. Thank partner, you, Luke. Um, partner <laughs> chain. Um, and uh, have a good break, everyone. Um, if uh, I, we don't speak with you um, uh, before next year, happy holidays. Um, I hope you enjoy the festive season. Um, we've very much enjoyed and welcomed and are grateful for your, your patronage and listening into the podcast this year. We've had some really interesting guests on. Thank you to our guests. Um, and, uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you've enjoyed it. I know I've certainly enjoyed it and, uh, I'm sure you have too, Callum, eh? I have too. Wishing everyone the best for the, for a happy new year. Till next year. Take care.